Chapter forty three of The Story of Mankind. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Story of Mankind by Hendrik von Loon. Chapter forty three The Reformation. The progress of the human race is best compared to a gigantic pendulum which forever swings forward and backward. The religious indifference and the artistic and literary enthusiasm of the Renaissance were followed by the artistic and literary indifference and the religious enthusiasm of the Reformation. Of course, you have heard of the Reformation. You think of a small but courageous group of pilgrims who crossed the ocean to have freedom of religious worship. Vaguely, in the course of time, and more especially in our Protestant countries, the Reformation has come to stand for the idea of liberty of thought. Martin Luther is represented as the leader of the vanguard of progress, but when history is something more than a series of flattering speeches addressed to our own glorious ancestors, when, to use the words of the German historian Ranke, we try to discover what actually happened, then much of the past is seen in a very different light. Few things in human life are either entirely good or entirely bad. Few things are either black or white. It is the duty of the honest chronicler to give a true account of all the good and bad sides of every historical event. It is very difficult to do this, because we all have our personal likes and dislikes, but we ought to try and be as fair as we can be, and must not allow our prejudices to influence us too much. Take my own case as an example. I grew up in the very Protestant centre of a very Protestant country. I never saw any Catholics until I was about twelve years old. Then I felt very uncomfortable when I met them. I was a little bit afraid. I knew the story of the many thousand people who had been burned and hanged and quartered by the Spanish Inquisition, when the Duke of Alba tried to cure the Dutch people of their Lutheran and Calvinistic heresies. All that was very real to me. It seemed to have happened only the day before. It might occur again. There might be another St. Bartholomew's night, and poor little me would be slaughtered in my nighty, and my body would be thrown out of the window, as had happened to the noble Admiral de Coligny. Much later I went to live for a number of years in a Catholic country. I found the people much pleasanter, and much more tolerant, and quite as intelligent as my former countrymen. To my great surprise I began to discover that there was a Catholic side to the Reformation, quite as much as a Protestant. Of course the good people of the sixteenth and seventeenth centuries, who actually lived through the Reformation, did not see things that way. They were always right, and their enemy was always wrong. It was a question of hang or be hanged, and both sides preferred to do the hanging, which was no more than human, and for which they deserve no blame. When we look at the world as it appeared in the year 1500, an easy date to remember, and the year in which the Emperor Charles V was born, this is what we see. The feudal disorder of the Middle Ages has given way before the order of a number of highly centralized kingdoms. The most powerful of all sovereigns is the great Charles, then a baby in a cradle. He is the grandson of Ferdinand and Isabella, and of Maximilian of Habsburg, the last of the medieval knights, and of his wife Mary, the daughter of Charles the Bold, the ambitious Burgundian duke, who had made successful war upon France 
but had been killed by the independent Swiss peasants. The child Charles, therefore, has fallen heir to the greater part of the map, to all the lands of his parents, grandparents, uncles, cousins, and aunts in Germany, in Austria, in Holland, in Belgium, in Italy, and in Spain, together with all their colonies in Asia, Africa, and America. By a strange irony of fate, he has been born in Ghent, in that same castle of the Counts of Flanders, which the Germans used as a prison during their recent occupation of Belgium, and although a Spanish king and a German emperor, he receives the training of a Fleming. As his father is dead, poisoned, so people say, but this is never proved, and his mother has lost her mind, she is travelling through her domains with the coffin containing the body of her departed husband, the child is left to the strict discipline of his Aunt Margaret. Forced to rule Germans and Italians and Spaniards and a hundred strange races, Charles grows up a Fleming, a faithful son of the Catholic Church, but quite averse to religious intolerance. He is rather lazy, both as a boy and as a man. But fate condemns him to rule the world when the world is in a turmoil of religious fervor. Forever he is speeding from Madrid to Innsbruck and from Bruges to Vienna. He loves peace and quiet, and he is always at war. At the age of fifty-five we see him turn his back upon the human race in utter disgust at so much hate and so much stupidity. Three years later he dies, a very tired and disappointed man. So much for Charles the Emperor. How about the Church, the second great power in the world? The Church has changed greatly since the early days of the Middle Ages, when it started out to conquer the heathen and show them the advantages of a pious and righteous life. In the first place, the Church has grown too rich. The Pope is no longer the shepherd of a flock of humble Christians. He lives in a vast palace, and surrounds himself with artists and musicians and famous literary men. His churches and chapels are covered with new pictures, in which the saints look more like Greek gods than is strictly necessary. He divides his time unevenly between affairs of state and art. The affairs of state take ten percent of his time. The other ninety percent goes to an active interest in Roman statues, recently discovered Greek vases, plans for a new summer home, the rehearsal of a new play. The archbishops and the cardinals follow the example of their pope. The bishops try to imitate the archbishops. The village priests, however, have remained faithful to their duties. They keep themselves aloof from the wicked world, and the heathenish love of beauty and pleasure. They stay away from the monasteries, where the monks seem to have forgotten their ancient vows of simplicity and poverty, and live as happily as they dare, without causing too much of a public scandal. Finally there are the common people. They are much better off than they have ever been before. They are more prosperous, they live in better houses, their children go to better schools, their cities are more beautiful than before, their firearms have made them the equal of their old enemies, the robber barons, who for centuries have levied such heavy taxes upon their trade. So much for the chief actors in the Reformation. Now let us see what the Renaissance has done to Europe, and then you will understand how the revival of learning and art was bound to be followed by a revival of religious interests. The Renaissance began in Italy. From there it spread to France. It was not quite successful in Spain, where five hundred years of warfare with the Moors had made the people very narrow-minded, 
and very fanatical in all religious matters. The circle had grown wider and wider, but once the Alps had been crossed, the Renaissance had suffered a change. The people of northern Europe, living in a very different climate, had an outlook upon life which contrasted strangely with that of their southern neighbours. The Italians lived out in the open, under a sunny sky. It was easy for them to laugh and to sing and to be happy. The Germans, the Dutch, the English, the Swedes, spent most of their time indoors, listening to the rain beating on the closed windows of their comfortable little houses. They did not laugh quite so much. They took everything more seriously. They were forever conscious of their immortal souls, and they did not like to be funny about matters which they considered holy and sacred. The humanistic part of the Renaissance, the books, the studies of ancient authors, the grammar and the textbooks, interested them greatly. But the general return to the old pagan civilization of Greece and Rome, which was one of the chief results of the Renaissance in Italy, filled their hearts with horror. But the papacy and the College of Cardinals was almost entirely composed of Italians, and they had turned the church into a pleasant club where people discussed art and music and the theatre, but rarely mentioned religion. Hence the split between the serious North and the more civilized but easy-going and indifferent South was growing wider and wider all the time, and nobody seemed to be aware of the danger that threatened the church. There were a few minor reasons which will explain why the Reformation took place in Germany, rather than in Sweden or England. The Germans bore an ancient grudge against Rome. The endless quarrels between emperor and pope had caused much mutual bitterness. In the other European countries where the government rested in the hands of a strong king, the ruler had often been able to protect his subjects against the greed of the priests. In Germany, where a shadowy emperor ruled a turbulent crowd of little princelings, the good burghers were more directly at the mercy of their bishops and prelates. These dignitaries were trying to collect large sums of money for the benefit of those enormous churches which were a hobby of the popes of the Renaissance. The Germans felt that they were being mulcted, and quite naturally they did not like it. And then there is the rarely mentioned fact that Germany was the home of the printing press. In northern Europe, books were cheap, and the Bible was no longer a mysterious manuscript owned and explained by the priest. It was a household book of many families where Latin was understood by the father and by the children. Whole families began to read it, which was against the law of the church. They discovered that the priests were telling them many things which, according to the original text of the Holy Scriptures, were somewhat different. This caused doubt. People began to ask questions, and questions, when they cannot be answered, often cause a great deal of trouble. The attack began when the humanists of the North opened fire upon the monks. In their heart of hearts they still had too much respect and reverence for the Pope to direct their sallies against his most holy person. But the lazy, ignorant monks, living behind the sheltering walls of their rich monasteries, offered rare sport. The leader in this warfare, curiously enough, was a very faithful son of the church, Gerard Gerardzon, or Desiderius Erasmus, as he is usually called, was a poor boy, born in Rotterdam in Holland, and educated at the same Latin school of Deventer, from which Thomas a Kempis had graduated. He had become a priest, and for a time he had lived in a monastery. He had travelled a great deal, 
and knew whereof he wrote. When he began his career as a public pamphleteer, he would have been called an editorial writer in our day, the world was greatly amused at an anonymous series of letters which had just appeared under the title of Letters of Obscure Men. In these letters the general stupidity and arrogance of the monks of the late Middle Ages was exposed in a strange German-Latin doggerel which reminds one of our modern limericks. Erasmus himself was a very learned and serious scholar who knew both Latin and Greek and gave us the first reliable version of the New Testament which he translated into Latin together with a corrected edition of the original Greek text. But he believed with Horace, the Roman poet, that nothing prevents us from stating the truth with a smile upon our lips. In the year 1500, while visiting Sir Thomas More in England, he took a few weeks off and wrote a funny little book called The Praise of Folly, in which he attacked the monks and their credulous followers with that most dangerous of all weapons, humour. The booklet was the best seller of the sixteenth century. It was translated into almost every language, and it made people pay attention to those other books of Erasmus, in which he advocated reform of the many abuses of the church, and appealed to his fellow humanists to help him in his task of bringing about a great rebirth of the Christian faith. But nothing came of these excellent plans. Erasmus was too responsible and too tolerant to please most of the enemies of the church. They were waiting for a leader of a more robust nature. He came, and his name was Martin Luther. Luther was a North German peasant, with a first-class brain, and possessed of great personal courage. He was a university man, a master of arts of the University of Erfurt. Afterwards he joined a Dominican monastery. Then he became a college professor at the Theological School of Wittenberg, and began to explain the scriptures to the indifferent ploughboys of his Saxon home. He had a lot of spare time, and this he used to study the original texts of the Old and New Testaments. Soon he began to see the great difference which existed between the words of Christ and those that were preached by the popes and the bishops. In the year 1511 he visited Rome on official business. Alexander the Sixth of the family of Borgia, who had enriched himself for the benefit of his son and daughter, was dead. But his successor, Julius the Second, a man of irreproachable personal character, was spending most of his time fighting and building, and did not impress this serious-minded German theologian with his piety. Luther returned to Wittenberg a much disappointed man, but worse was to follow. The gigantic church of St. Peter, which Pope Julius had wished upon his innocent successors, although only half begun, was already in need of repair. Alexander the Sixth had spent every penny of the papal treasury. Leo X, who succeeded Julius in the year 1513, was on the verge of bankruptcy. He reverted to an old method of raising ready cash. He began to sell indulgences. An indulgence was a piece of parchment, which, in return for a certain sum of money, promised a sinner a decrease of the time which he would have to spend in purgatory. It was a perfectly correct thing, according to the creed of the late Middle Ages. Since the Church had the power to forgive the sins of those who truly repented before they died, the Church also had the right to shorten, through its intercession with the saints, 
the time during which the soul must be purified in the shadowy realms of purgatory. It was unfortunate that these indulgences must be sold for money, but they offered an easy form of revenue, and besides, those who were too poor to pay received theirs for nothing. Now it happened in the year 1517 that the exclusive territory for the sale of indulgences in Saxony was given to a Dominican monk by the name of Johann Tetzel. Brother Johann was a hustling salesman. To tell the truth, he was a little too eager. His business methods outraged the pious people of the little duchy, and Luther, who was an honest fellow, got so angry that he did a rash thing. On the 31st of October of the year 1517, he went to the court church, and upon the doors thereof he posted a sheet of paper with ninety-five statements, or theses, attacking the sale of indulgences. These statements had been written in Latin. Luther had no intention of starting a riot. He was not a revolutionist. He objected to the institution of the indulgences, and he wanted his fellow professors to know what he thought about them. But this was still a private affair of the clerical and professorial world, and there was no appeal to the prejudices of the community of laymen. Unfortunately, at that moment when the whole world had begun to take an interest in the religious affairs of the day, it was utterly impossible to discuss anything without at once creating a serious mental disturbance. In less than two months, all Europe was discussing the ninety-five theses of the Saxon monk. Everyone must take sides. Every obscure little theologian must print his own opinion. The papal authorities began to be alarmed. They ordered the Wittenberg professor to proceed to Rome and give an account of his action. Luther wisely remembered what had happened to Huss. He stayed in Germany, and he was punished with excommunication. Luther burned the papal bull in the presence of an admiring multitude, and from that moment peace between himself and the Pope was no longer possible. Without any desire on his part, Luther had become the leader of a vast army of discontented Christians. German patriots like Ulrich von Hutten rushed to his defence. The students of Wittenberg and Erfurt and Leipzig offered to defend him should the authorities try to imprison him. The elector of Saxony reassured the eager young men, no harm would befall Luther as long as he stayed on Saxon ground. All this happened in the year 1520. Charles V was twenty years old, and as the ruler of half the world, was forced to remain on pleasant terms with the Pope. He sent out calls for a diet, or a general assembly, in the good city of Worms on the Rhine, and commanded Luther to be present, and give an account of his extraordinary behaviour. Luther, who was now the national hero of the Germans, went. He refused to take back a single word of what he had ever written or said. His conscience was controlled only by the word of God. He would live and die for his conscience. The Diet of Worms, after due deliberation, declared Luther an outlaw before God and man, and forbade all Germans to give him shelter or food or drink, or to read a single word of the books which the dastardly heretic had written. But the great reformer was in no danger. By the majority of the Germans of the North, the edict was denounced as a most unjust and outrageous document. For greater safety, Luther was hidden in the Wartburg, 
a castle belonging to the Elector of Saxony, and there he defied all papal authority by translating the entire Bible into the German language, that all the people might read and know the word of God for themselves. By this time the Reformation was no longer a spiritual and religious affair. Those who hated the beauty of the modern church building used this period of unrest to attack and destroy what they did not like, because they did not understand it. Impoverished knights tried to make up for past losses by grabbing the territory which belonged to the monasteries. Discontented princes made use of the absence of the emperor to increase their own power. The starving peasants, following the leadership of half-crazy agitators, made the best of the opportunity, and attacked the castles of their masters, and plundered, and murdered, and burned with the zeal of the old crusaders. A veritable reign of disorder broke loose throughout the empire. Some princes became Protestants, as the protesting adherents of Luther were called, and persecuted their Catholic subjects. Others remained Catholic, and hanged their Protestant subjects. The Diet of Speyer, of the year 1526, tried to settle this difficult question of allegiance by ordering that the subjects should all be of the same religious denomination as their princes. This turned Germany into a checkerboard of a thousand hostile little duchies and principalities, and created a situation which prevented the normal political growth for hundreds of years. In February of the year 1546, Luther died, and was put to rest in the same church where, twenty-nine years before, he had proclaimed his famous objections to the sale of indulgences. In less than thirty years, the indifferent, joking, and laughing world of the Renaissance had been transformed into the arguing, quarreling, backbiting, debating society of the Reformation. The universal spiritual empire of the popes came to a sudden end, and the whole of Western Europe was turned into a battlefield, where Protestants and Catholics killed each other for the greater glory of certain theological doctrines, which are as incomprehensible to the present generation as the mysterious inscriptions of the ancient Etruscans. End of chapter 43 Read by Kara Schallenberg on March 5th, 2009 in San Diego, California